From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Today's day one to take the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. The survey will run in two six-week waves, according to a memo from the Acting Office of Personnel Management Director Michael Regas. GovExec reports the pandemic delayed the beginning of the survey twice. The Defense Information Systems Agency has a nominee to be its next leader. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says the White House has nominated Air Force Major General Robert Skinner to be the next director of DISA and commander of Joint Forces Doden. C4ISRNet reports Skinner was deputy at Joint Forces Doden in its early days. Marine Corps Major General Michael Groen will take over as the new head of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center at the Pentagon. He'll replace Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan. Defense News reports Shanahan retired in May. The General Services Administration has resources for both the Biden and Trump transition organizations. Both teams can start using office space, computers, and technology services the government pays for. David Marchik is director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. David, welcome back. It's good to see you again. What's happening now or what should be happening now if these organizations are hitting their marks in the presidential transition process? Thanks for having me, Francis. It's, it's really crunch time for transition planning. And there are three main constituencies. There's the Trump White House, which is preparing for a second term and preparing if they don't win a second term. There are the career officials around the government agencies who are preparing for either eventuality. And the Biden team is gearing up to be ready on day one, should they win. With each of those stakeholders, in, in your expert view, where should they be now? I'm particularly interested in what the agency people should be doing to work with both of those outside organizations to get them up to speed on what's happening. Uh, the agencies are actually doing a fantastic job led by the OMB and the GSA. They're working hard. The Pentagon alone has 30 people working almost full-time on transition planning. What they're doing right now is getting briefing materials ready for the incoming team should Biden win. They're preparing succession plans, and they're also preparing a second-term agenda should Trump be reelected. So the agencies, they're working hard. The career officials take this very seriously. They're operating to implement the Presidential Transition Act, and I feel very good about where they are today. That Presidential Transition Act, I think, is, is an interesting codification of um, something that has been evolving over time. I remember in the first transition I covered in this space was the 2008 transition of President Bush to President Obama. And I remember Senator McCain very heavily criticizing Senator Obama on the campaign trail um, in June of that year for starting to prepare his transition team. In hindsight, that's too late, isn't it? If, if someone's thinking about these things in June and, and putting their, their pieces together in September, that's, that's not good, is it? It's, it's way too late. We started talking to the Trump White House and also to around 10 Democratic campaigns in January. And our message was to the Democratic campaigns, for example, if you're still standing in March, that's when you need to start go, get, getting your transition plan going. And that's exactly what the Biden team did. They're very organized. They have a very all-star team of people around them. 
They unveiled their board of governors last week. And at the head of it is a fellow named Ted Kaufman, who not only has known the candidate for 40 plus years, but when he was in the Senate, he actually wrote a law amending the Presidential Transition Act. So they're taking it very seriously. They have a good team and they're focused on being ready for day one. What does a successful transition and a successful transition organization look like in the case of a president who's reelected? Let's say President Trump's reelected. I think there's an assumption in the general public that there's no transition and things just continue apace. And you and others have educated me over time. That's not the case at all. It's actually a huge transition. And let me just talk about two aspects of it. On personnel, the data shows that almost half of the top people in the second term leave within six months of the president's inauguration. And some would say, including Josh Bolton, who was chief of staff for President Bush, that's not enough. You need more change. You need fresh eyes, fresh legs, fresh perspective, because a second term is inherently more difficult than a first term. All of the easy policy issues have already been implemented. The Congress is pretty much much more hostile and the president is lame duck the first day after the election. So they have a fellow named Chris Liddell at the White House who's the deputy chief of staff. He's an expert on transition planning. He was the head of the Romney transition team and he's focused on both policy and personnel should Trump be reelected. What happens in the case of that reelection? What, what's the effective thing that you would like to see Chris do the day after the election if it, or the day that we know that President Trump will be reelected if that turns out to be the case? Well, the biggest challenge for the Trump team will be personnel. Can they attract the best people in the government? There's been you know, just a huge amount of turnover in the Trump administration, much more than normal. They have a large number of acting positions. And whether you support Trump or you don't support Trump, you want him to have the best team around him should he be reelected. And so that will be the most important priority if they're reelected, is getting good people, competent people, pragmatic people to come into government, to staff the government. We're obviously in a critical time for the government. We're in a pandemic and delivery of healthcare, delivery of a vaccine, helping people that are out of jobs, out of work and in need. There's never been a more important time in recent history where the government really has an impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. And that's why you need good people. David Marchick, thanks very much as always. Thanks for having me. Up next, innovation in Air Force contracting. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the data that makes the difference for the force. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. About 1,300 companies do business with AFWorks, the Air Force's innovation organization. About 90% of AFWorks contracts came through open topics and didn't address specific requirements. Eric Lofgren's a research fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. Eric, welcome. It's good to see you. What jumps out at you in this data that is out about what AFWorks is doing and how it's doing it? Hey, Francis. Yeah. 
actually not too much jumps out because I believe the Air Force and AFWERKS has actually done a pretty good job communicating with the public. And so we kind of already had a good feel for how many awards and the types of uh, companies that they had been working with. But one thing that did jump out that I wasn't expecting from the data was that they actually um, showed how much private funding about half of these companies had. And indeed, from series the seed round through series A, B, C, they broke that out. And there was about $7.7 billion in uh, private funding provided to companies that AFWERKS were supporting. And the AFWERKS share of how much they had been funding these companies was a bit over 400 million. And it should be probably approaching 500 million or more by now since the data is a little bit out of date. There's still um, some lag in putting some of the data in there. But yeah, so the, the new, uh, the private funding was something that jumped out. Is that a good ratio? Does that mean that the efforts that the military has undertaken are paying dividends that that um, private sector organizations are willing to fund these companies to try to do business with DOD? Yeah, it's a big win and something that the Air Force has been talking about, especially over the last year. They said, you know, in 2019, they brought in about $1 billion of matching funds and so I think that's something that's going to the Air Force strategy, right? They don't want to create a new set of prime contractors that are totally reliant on the Department of Defense. And instead, they're moving towards dual use. And with their small business innovation research funds, which are about 90% of the funds that they're obligating to these contracts and these companies, uh, they don't want you know small businesses that make a business out of you know, winning these types of awards and staying small and kind of doing the same thing over and over. They want dual use companies, you know, so private investors believe in these technologies as well. And either they scale in defense and then make it and are able to transform to some degree the, the force structure or they kind of fall out. And so and, and so that's reflecting that strategy there. I want to talk about scale maybe from a different perspective in a moment, Eric, but you write another 2019 number that you reference is 30 uh, percent, and that's the number of SBIR and STTR phase one awards that went to new entrants in the defense business. And you point that out as a good thing because you reference 2011 to 2018, that number was only about 13 percent. What's driving that? Is it just awareness in the marketplace? that this is a possibility for companies, or is there something else that you happen, that you think is happening to drive that? Yeah, so that came from a great uh, research report from Alex and Amanda Bressler. And yeah, so we have been seeing about 10 to 13% of the Cyber Phase 1 awards going to new entrants in the past. And then 2019, when AFWERKS really started ramping up, we saw that jump to 30 and AFWERKS was, or the Air Force at least, was really leading the way with these new entrants using the Cyber Small Business Innovation Research Program, where that jumped, you know, they were doing more than five times as many new entrants were being brought in by the Air Force relative to the rest of the, the Department of Defense combined, right? And so, you know, this is something that the Air Force has been really looking at and, and putting pressure on in terms of getting new blood into the system. And I think uh, in terms of the Air Force, insofar as they're doing a little bit better job bringing in new talent, there's, you know, companies have always been aware of Cyber for the most part. It's just that 
you know, the government also has to do market research on its own end and really be kind of willing to open the door. And other organizations certainly have done this as well, such as Softworks um, and Special Operations Command. Uh, but, you know, the AFWERC seems to be doing it at a much bigger scale than the rest of the services. So that word scale again, how does the, how does the Air Force scale this? How do the other organizations across the Defense Department that are trying to do the same thing scale their operations? Because I think objectively you can look at this data and say, if this is what we want, this is working and we should do more of it. Right. So the Air Force is still, they still haven't really figured that part out right yet. And the jury's still out on whether they will be able to scale some of these small businesses, startups into large companies with recurring revenue through a program of record or otherwise in the Department of Defense. And AFWERCS actually has been taking the lead. They have an Air Force Ventures program, which basically they're, they're kind of being innovated with the, the CIBR program where there was a $3 million cap. Um, but you can actually go get approval to increase that. And that's what they've done with their strategic finance program. And that's really allowed, allowed them to try to get more money into the hands of these companies in order to bridge this so-called valley of death where it takes many years, let's just say a cyber program, you know, actually proves something out of the department wants it. Well, it's gonna take at least two, probably three, four, five years in order for them to line up the requirements and the funding in order to get it over to those companies. And so the Stratfi program is really there to kind of bridge this where in March, 2020, they were able to send 100 million of AFWERX dollars to 21 companies, so that's about $9 million each. But then they had matching dollars from the program office at the same amount. And then they had $350 million in private venture capital um, coming into that as well. So these companies were able to get a little bit of funding to continue doing what they're doing, uh, meeting the military requirements. And then hopefully, and that's the expectation that they will be able to bridge these. But really what we're gonna have to be looking going forward is, Will these things actually, you know, scale in the Department of Defense and help transform the force structure? And will some of the other, uh, you know, companies through this program be able to get Cyber Phase Three awards and start doing something similar outside the Stratfi program? Eric, thanks very much for coming on. It's great insight. You're welcome. Up next, planning ahead for a fiscally responsible future. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the next moves for financial managers all across government. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Budget documents are due to the Office of Management and Budget for fiscal 2022 soon. Some of the tools financial managers need to put those documents together, though, may be holding them back. Doug Crisitello is a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. He's former chief financial officer at Housing and Urban Development and the Small Business Administration. Doug, welcome. It's good to see you. Uh, you and your colleagues at Napa looking at what uh, financial managers in government are up against. Uh, and the nation's long-term fiscal health. What are your main takeaways from the work that you and your team did? Well, you know, as our working group at Napa began consideration of the nation's fiscal health, I mean, we were painfully aware that the American public has become 
increasingly mystified and desensitized about the country's fiscal condition and the gravity of its ever-expanding national debt. So we set out to offer practical solutions to nudge the country toward a more sustainable fiscal path. Um, and in the midst of our study, the COVID-19 pandemic hit, making uh, the U.S. fiscal outlook even more dire and the need for action more immediate. So our report emphasizes that there's a real need to catalyze a national conversation on the country's fiscal health by appealing to American sense of fairness and practicality. On fairness, it's just a matter of the public needs to understand that if we keep our current policies roughly in place, you know, uh, we're spending far out paces revenues, future generations are, are going to be left to pay a, a tab that will undermine their quality of life. And on practicality, the U.S. is entering uncharted waters in terms of how much it's able to borrow. You know, the Congressional Budget Office recently reported that debt is projected to exceed 100% of GDP next year and reach its highest level in the nation's history a couple of years later. You know, by way of comparison, that ratio was about 35% as recently as 2007. So we've tripled our indebtedness in short order. So a national debt of this magnitude could undermine the strength of the country if investors begin to demand significantly higher interest rates from the U.S. or refuse to lend at all. The, you make a number of recommendations, you and your colleagues, in this work, Doug, and a couple of them I want to focus on in particular. One is fixing a broken federal budgeting process. Is there anything that executive branch leaders can do about that, or is that all up to Congress to be able to try to straighten that out? Yeah, uh, it is a very broken process. You know, I, I went back and looked at 40 years of budgeting under the 74 Act, and, you know, we've had 186 continuing resolutions, 20 funding lapses, and, and the, the, the process has only gone, according to Hoyle, four times since 1977. So we, we recognize that process is dysfunctional. So what can we do? administratively to try to improve. And a couple of things came to us. One, the, the, uh, the executive branch can institute a four-year planning cycle on budgeting to, uh, not unlike what the Department of Defense does already, they have five-year cycles. I think it would help a lot if we just sort of administratively move to a four-year planning process uh, the first full year of a president's administration, you know, there could be big policy proposals offered up and a sort of wholesale review of everything that government does. But we don't need to reinvent that wheel every year. So, uh, so we recommend in the Napa report that civilian agencies consider a very uh, definite four-year cycle. Uh, we, we think that's a terrific idea, and there's lots of operational details that I could talk about there. Another thing that we stress is the importance of doing a better job planning for national emergencies. And again, a lot of that is on the executive branch as to how we budget for emergencies. We're seeing these tail risk type events 
occur with increasing frequency, right? I mean, 100-year floods, you know, I think that term just applies to as one happened recently almost, but we've seen Katrina and 9-11 and the 2008 financial crisis and now the pandemic, catastrophic type events. This isn't just, you know, a, a tornado touching down. So uh, we think a lot more can be done within the executive branch on uh, on recognizing the risk of these catastrophic events and reserving in the budget adequate amounts to respond effectively. We have less than a minute left, Doug. You also, uh, you and your colleagues, write about enhancing financial management and controls as a recommendation. What do the men and women on the front lines of financial management at agencies need to be able to do that better? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the CFO Act of 1990, right, we're, we're, uh, we're now 30 years into it, uh, it's, it's, it's been a huge success, but there's only so much that financial management staff and CFOs can do. What they do is critically important, especially to sort of build trust on the part of uh, the public that they are proper stewards of taxpayer dollars. But these broader issues really need to be addressed about getting the country on a more sustainable fiscal footing. That's something that line managers can't, it, it can't contribute all that much to. But I would encourage the financial managers that are out there to continue doing what they're doing. Think more about outcomes, right? We want to link evidence and outcomes to budgetary resources. Um, and, uh, you know, that's critically important going forward. Doug Crisitello, thanks very much as always. Thanks, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.